You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. Oleander. You're listening to 1130 AM, Oleander Community Radio. Here's the community bulletin board of what's going on this week. Thank you for listening. Stay indoors. Stay indoors. Wear a mask or don't. Hey everyone, it's me, DB, and this guy right over here to my virtual left, or my virtual right, depending on where you're at. Who are you? And I am not DB. No. No, I am Farmer Dave. All right, now we have that established. Welcome to Radio Free Oleander, the best, in parentheses, of Oleander, Oregon, on 1130 AM KZOM, home of the Oleander... I don't know, home of Oleander something. So thank you for listening, and we are going to be talking about some uh, another Santa substitute. I think we've what we've been calling them. <laughs> and yes, yes. So for those of you who maybe didn't listen to last week, mm-hmm. in 1949, oh, yeah. this guy goes crazy. Uh, and he kills 19 people in the Little Sisters of Melanie Nunnery. And he's dressed in a Santa suit. Mm-hmm. So ever since then, for the last you know, 71 years, it's been illegal to to demonstrate anything or, or wear a Santa Claus or have any public Santa Claus decorations. Yep. And uh, those who actually live in the Pacific Northwest might know it uh, about like 15 years ago. McMinimins tried to buy it and the city of Oleander was like, no, 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 no. Uh, You don't know the history of that place. And they're like, oh yeah, no, we don't want to buy it. We don't want to turn this into a restaurant slash hotel. And the city of Oleander went, you know what? We want to turn this into an elementary school. So. Reasons why there's no Santa Claus in, um, in Oleander. So the city has – people have to find their own substitutes. And yeah. we talked about one last week, which is Krampus, yes. which is a great episode, so listen to it. Yes. Uh, this week we will be talking about Belschnickel, uh, another uh, Santa substitute. And uh, Ben, ben Snicken? Doesn't, doesn't he live on Blue uh, Bluebird Lane? <laughs> I believe that's Blue Jay R- Way. But uh, – ah. Yeah, no, no, no. Uh, not, not, not Ben Schnicken. Uh, Bell Schnickel. So we'll be talking about that a little bit. And uh, you have an interview with a writer who writes YA and horror, I believe. Yeah. So her name is uh, Mar. <coughs> excuse me, Marlena Frank. Mm-hmm. And just a really good. Uh, excuse me. Uh, catch my breath here. Sure. A really good writer and just a really good interview because I'm, I'm fascinated. You know, young adult writing, it's the thing right now. I mean, there's a lot. It's a huge market. You know, say what you want about Twilight. Okay. It opened the market. Say what you want about Harry Potter. All right. It's a huge market, The Hunger Games. And it has not only just youth readers, but adults. So how do you write horror when people who are young adult readers are usually pretty intelligent? Mm-hmm. But they're maybe not as emotionally experienced as you would towards an adult art artist or an adult uh, uh, adult uh, audience. Oh sure, sure. So so you know you know my question was well do do you have to pull your punches? Yeah. How, how do you write horror for a young adult and still keep some aspect of of horror? 
Uh, it's a really good interview. Yeah. Uh, just just to sidetrack a little bit before we talk about what else we've got on the show going on. Uh, now, okay. When you were young, what kind of horror did you read? Did you read YA horror or did you read horror? How young? How young? Hell young. How young? How young? So, so I am the classic Oregon guy with a beard that's at every Cthulhu con. Okay. I started reading Lovecraft when I was 13. Sure. But that's it. I didn't read other types of horror. I read okay. Lovecraft. I was a kid when I was younger. I, I would get so scared with the music that was on the original Star Trek. Uh-huh. That I would freak out and leave the room during Star Trek episodes. Gotcha. But but yeah, so I, I um you know, I read Lovecraft. All right. Uh, and, and that was that was that was about that was my connection to horror as as a youth. Okay. And I've I've talked to a number of people about horror over the years with this show and other shows that I've done. And most people I know their introduction to horror generally isn't like young adult but generally like classics that they have to read either in class or for fun like dracula or even like old gothic stories like frankenstein and other ones out there or old pulps like hp lovecraft and then move on to like stephen king and Anne rice and then seek out more independent authors and then find the niche where uh, I, I find a lot of the writers that I, I, I particularly like that have appeared on this show and other shows that I've, I've hosted and been at conventions and on panels and all the Lovecraftian, Cthuliano, Bizarro, outsider, writer folk. But... <laughs> and, and I think that's definitely true even now. Yeah. But I think there's now much more of a... I would say the kids growing up in the last ten years, I think, are exposed to a lot more options as youth. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. It's not just what shade of Stephen King do you want to read? Do you want to read Richard Bachman or Stephen King? But <laughs> and also or, or Joe Hill. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Joe Hill. Yeah. Um, no, something for the audience that doesn't know that that Stephen King's son. I want to say like Stephen King's clone, but <laughs> but yeah, yeah, no, no, no. Um, I'm I'm excited to listen to this and find out what YA horror is. I mean, I, I think maybe the closest I got to YA horror when I was like eight is reading uh, House on Haunted Hill, but you know, and uh, 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 Edgar Allan Poe and like spooky Sherlock Holmes stories, but. Yeah. yeah, so I so I did move. I did read one that I remember horror young adult book, mm-hmm. and that was uh, the Watcher in the Woods. Yeah, when they made a, a Disney movie. Uh-huh. Uh And then by the time you know I was a, a sophomore or junior, I I'd moved to Stephen King, like his short stories in the stand. Gotcha. But yeah, I'm actually a very strange sort of person to associate. Um, with horror because I do freak out really easily. Uh-huh. Um. And sort of my tie into horror has always been through Lovecraft and the Lovecraft circle. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, no. And uh, a lot of people think, oh, DB loves horror movies. And it's like, no, DB's a huge chicken. Uh, I, I mean, granted, yeah. uh, one of my favorite movies of all time is Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But 
other than that, I am a huge chicken, and I, I, I chicken out with gore pretty quickly. And um, yeah. I, I, I like classic yeah, I'm not horror a, I'm movies. not a huge gore. And, and I li- That's I, it. I'm not a huge gore. Yeah, I, I like campy gore, like uh, Italian 70s horror movies and like Evil Dead 2, Evil Dead, like uh, that kind of stuff. I mean, I like classic ha- ha- horror. Have you, ever and... seen, uh, have you ever seen John Dies at the End? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, no, we should cover that at some point in time. That's 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 a fun movie. Yeah. Yeah, no, uh but yeah, yeah, no, no. I I, I like Lovecraftian classic horror, just yeah, but anyway, uh we're we're getting way off track. I'm excited to hear that story. Uh and then and then after that, uh we're gonna have some D and D on D and D and since it's cold out, I thought, hey, let's have a conversation about Cold D&D, sub-Arctic, Arctic D&D, and we'll talk about, like, our own personal experiences in cold weather, uh, role-playing, whatnot, and, yeah, so let's get this show going. Here's some station identification, and we'll be right back after these messages. Then I add a fake Good, because I was wondering what station we were listening to. <laughs> You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. Hey everyone, we are back, and I am going to talk about a Santa substitute, as, as Dave talked about earlier. Uh, Oleander has Santa substitutes, and this one is no exception, and we're talking about Belschnickel. Belschnickel is a uh, kind of like Santa substitute, which is a crotchety, fur-clad uh, Christmas gift bringer, in the uh, folklore of southwest Germany, along the Rhine, uh, the Saarland, and the Odenwald, and the Balden Wutenhabdenberg, uh, also uh, Pennsylvania Dutch communities, uh, Brazilian German communities, and uh, bits and pieces throughout Appalachia. Uh, Belschnickel is related uh, to other companions of St. Nicholas in the folklore of German speaking Europe. He may have been based off of an older German myth, uh, Necht Rupert, a servant of St. Nicholas, and a character from northern Germany. Unlike those figures, Belschnickel does not accompany St. Nicholas, but instead visits alone, and combines both the threatening and the benign aspects of the other traditions as divided between St. Nicholas and companion figures. Um, so, just, uh, just... An example: uh, a lot of uh, a lot of southwestern uh, German immigrants, uh, Schwabian immigrants, uh, came to Oregon, particularly uh, around Oleander when the railroads were built. But there was also a lot of mining and stonework to be done uh, for the cemetery, and a lot of that was done by. Uh, uh, people who were like second third generation schwabian immigrants who came over uh during the seven year war schwabian americans yes yes and uh participated in like the american indian wars and the uh, american battle of independence and all that fun stuff and uh but were, were they the hessians no 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 this is a totally different group this is a group that uh because the french were coming through their territory and Queen Anne was allied with uh, whoever was like looking over the, you know, they, they were just like pastoral peasants and Queen Anne's like, oh, these terrible people. 
what happens to them is equally, if not worse, uh, the French keep attacking them. Let's bring them to England. And then the English were like, get those uh, Schwabians out of here. We don't, we don't need a bunch of miners. And then, uh, then they went over and became the Pennsylvania Dutch and the Appalachians and like a bunch of other folk throughout uh, Western uh, New England states and Pennsylvania, whatnot. And also, uh, and the Oregon Dutch. Yeah, yeah, no, and a bunch migrated uh, west from uh, Appalachia, and we get. Uh, we, we have some traditions, uh, whether it be Belschnickel or uh, – whoa, I'm trying to remember the other one uh, that I saw. It has the uh, masks and stuff. It's um, – oh, I'll remember it. It's uh, not oh, – I'll, 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 I'll have to look it up later. <laughs> no, it's not Krampus. No, it's not Krampus. It's, it's, uh, it's in February. Uh, anyway um, – but yeah, uh, Belschnickel originated in uh, southwest Germany uh, and moved to Pennsylvania uh, when uh, Germans brought traditions with them. Belschnickel's known in Pennsylvania as early as the 1800s, like on printed page, but actually was brought much earlier, as I said, uh, when German immigrants, or what are now known as German immigrants, but the Schwabian people moved to. Uh, so uh, tradition pretty much is Belschnickel shows up about a week or two before Christmas and is often, uh, often creates a fright because kids know what's coming. And Belschnickel shows up and like has his furs. He's this crotchety old guy and he throws a bunch of candy up in the air and kids who are good uh, get candy, and kids who are bad get, like, uh, beaten uh, with, like, a uh, hazel rod. Uh, but that's that's what kids are told. What actually happens is candy and toys are thrown on the ground, and then, like, uh, whoever's Belschnickel, like, pretends to hit the kids and stuff like that, but nothing ever happens. And in parts of the world where Belschnickel is observed and celebrated like Krampus. So this is going to be interesting in the next week or so uh, when Belschnickel and Krampus might be roaming the streets of Oleander, hopefully wearing masks, but uh, young men dress up as, uh, as Belschnickel and perform pranks and, like, threaten other people and hopefully not so much these days and just pretty much like go to people's houses and demand drinks and like bring gifts to children and just just belschnickel it up shaking shaking as we, we call that in oleander thursday yeah yeah shaking bells making a mess but yeah yeah belschnickel yeah, going to people's <laughs> house and demanding drinks that, that's thursday here <laughs> but not so much these days but yeah, I'm going to look up that uh, German festival that I'm thinking that happens in February. Pashtnacht is what I'm thinking of. And, uh... Frost night? It is... Look it up. It is an old, like, Swiss-German uh, kind of like Mardi Gras kind of thing, but predates Mardi mm. Gras. Uh, Fastnacht is an annual Pennsylvania Dutch celebration that falls on... Uh, Shrove Tuesday, the day before Ash Wednesday. Uh, the word translates to fasting night in English. The tradition is to eat the very best foods, which are the 
uh, part of the German tradition, and uh, as much of them before the uh, Lent fest, <laughs> before uh, Lent, and also uh, there's dancing, there's wearing masks. It's 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 like it's, it's German Mardi Gras. It's German Mardi Gras. So. Yeah, uh, that that was the festival that I was trying to think of, folks. I'll I'll, I'll edit the part where I, I I have to like I don't know what it's called, but yeah, that's 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 what's going on with that. But um, you know, it'd be cool. What's that, Dave? You know, it'd be cool, like a Mardi Gras parade, but instead of beads, they throw strudel at you. <laughs> I would be so down for that. <laughs> well, there's there's uh, no beads in Fastnacht, and if people want to show off what they have, I mean, that's just part of Fastnacht. But and uh, I've seen photos I, of I'd I'd flash a float for a, a strudel. <laughs> and yeah, no, you, you just get candy. And yeah, no, and oh. it's uh, you eat as much food. No one throws food. You just there's food everywhere, and there's there's drink, and there's uh, you consume as much, and you have as much fun. And because um, yeah, it's. Uh, it's Lent, and uh, yeah, no, no, we're talking about like an area of Germany that was. <laughs> I, I think it's a Catholic thing, but they might have they might have borrowed. I don't know. Oh, about sure, that yeah. Part of Germany, yeah, there's yeah, a lot yeah. of crossover. Certainly, certainly, and I haven't looked up enough about it. I just know enough about it that that it's food and masks, and uh, it's before Ash Wednesday. So, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, that's that's. Uh, uh, one event that's coming up in Oleander and another event that's coming up in Oleander. And yeah, uh, whether it be folk music or uh, German festivals, there's there's weird bits of uh, Appalachian culture in Oleander, which isn't the strangest thing. I mean, it's kind of, I mean, it's kind of weird that Oleander is the weird melting pot that it is. But it's not weird for Oleander. It's it, it feels like it's like kind of the tradition. Yeah, and you know, and yes, and a lot of people, you know, those people when the Dust Bowl came, they moved west, and you know, you know, we're a hundred miles from the from the beach, but this is about as west as you can go. Yeah. So you know, it made sense that the people would end up in this area. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, especially when the railroad was big. Yeah, and and there's always like various places that always like put out like uh, want ads in uh, big cities elsewhere. Oblivion's is notorious for hiring people and being like, "Okay, you seem like you're doing good. Do you want to open up your own place?" Boom, you get the pie hole. You know, boom, you get this other place over there. Bam, you get this place over there. Other people helping other people. Things pop up, things die down, but you know what? It's I don't know. I don't know. Uh, maybe, uh... And, and that's that's why you get a lot a lot of the ethnicities like the 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 Schwabians. Yeah, yeah. I, I never thought about it. I never the, thought about it. But there's they always reach like out to their cousin Schwabian and say, "Hey, I got a nice place by the river. Why don't you come live with me?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, no, no. There's 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 a lot of that that's uh, been happening for sure in the what you call it the, the past. But uh, speaking about the past, we're going to talk about some fake past. Some. Uh, fake renaissance with some magic thrown in there i don't know wait a minute uh what is what is fifth edition is it just like uh magical fantasy or is it based off any kind of european field you feel well um there there are ways kind of think trying to make that sort of neutral mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so there's there's you know 
they've got their sort of steampunk versions. Uh-huh. They've got an official Greek one out. Oh yeah. They've got something called um, something incorporated, which I guess is based on a web comic. Uh, about where it's a giant business and you, you know you end up working for a uh, like a, a mind flayer as your supervisor gotcha uh, as you go out and raid so so i think they're trying to um, be as neutral as sort of they can to increase you know uh, the audience but a lot of people are coming out with some really excellent uh, some excellent fay books and um, so uh, yeah i would say it's probably uh generic uh, mid Tolkien time period. I think gotcha. they're, they're trying to to leave that uh, sort of blank. Cool, 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 cool. Because yeah, no, no. Past past editions have have leaned a little bit too much on like real European history for like fashions and stuff like that. And it's like, wouldn't they come up with something yeah. cooler if like magic was involved? <laughs> yeah. and you got to remember too, that, you know. There were no castles in England until the 11th century. Oh, yeah. And plate mail not until the 15th century. Definitely. So we, we tell this 5th century story of uh, of King Arthur, and uh-huh. we have him running around in plate mail that's literally invented 8,000 years later. Uh-huh. <laughs> but I guess that's why, you know, the, the fantasy kitchen kitchen soup, you know, Definitely. kitchen sink, you just throw everything in. Definitely. Let's, let's, let's mix the uh, Gothic with the uh, uh, 16th century Italian with the... Uh, uh, 11th century Normans with the <laughs> probably mixing stuff up wrong, but uh, seventh, you know, sixth century Welsh tales with. Uh... <laughs> oh, let, let's not forget to throw in some sagas just for. <laughs> some... <laughs> yep. That's D and D. Speaking of D and D, up next, D and D on D and D. We'll be talking about the barren Northlands and things of that nature. All right, here we go. Welcome back. This is the Farmer Dave Show, and we have a special guest, uh, Marlena Frank, and she is a horror writer. Uh, did quite a bit of writing, uh, but a lot of it also in the young adult uh, uh, genre. Uh, Marlena. Uh, if our listeners are interested in finding your books, where can they find them? Well, you can find my website at MarlenaFrank.com. Um, you can also find me on Amazon. If you just look up Marlena Frank books, you'll likely find me. Um, I'm pretty, pretty on, on most platforms that you can find me. Just look up Marlena Frank um, and any of my book titles will usually bring me up. Okay. And you can get them. It looks like you can get many of your uh, in both uh, Kindle format as well as traditional um, uh, paper, correct? Yes, yes. You know, I Kindle is, is it saves you money and it's, it saves you space. I still just love the, the, the feel of paper on when I'm reading. There's nothing that quite replaces that, to be honest with you. Just opening up a, a brand new book and the smell of like the, the 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 glue and stuff like that and the ink and the pages. It's just it's it's. A very unique experience. <laughs> You're preaching to the choir on that one. <laughs> so, so I'm, I'm, I'm very interested. Uh, I've talked to quite a few authors, but you're really the first uh, young adult author. And, you know, my first thought is, since you're writing horror, do you feel compelled to maybe pull punches when, uh, when you're writing young adult horror? So I really don't pull punches as far as the spooky factor goes. Um, I may, you know, choose what angle I want to view the spooky factor in my books, you know, um, 
because I think having that distance there is kind of important in, in young adult literature um, for me personally, but there's plenty of other young adult authors that don't even have that kind of distance there. But I do try to, I try to think of my audience as well when I'm writing some really horrific scenes. Um, in my book, The Seeking, which is a young adult horror novel, there's some really terrible things that happen in that book. Um, but it's all through the filter of my protagonist, Dahlia, and how she's, how she's seeing it, you know? So, um, at, at one point she can't even look at the horrible thing that's happened. She has to just stare at a dandelion on the ground and try to process it because I feel like that's a very realistic way of how you would handle that, you know, whenever you're first exposed to that kind of, of, of terrible thing in your life. So just sure. thinking of how my audience would deal with it. Absolutely. So, so and I think what you're kind of saying, I want to make sure I have this right, mm -hmm. is the way your character absorbs it is sort of the way you think that the, the audience, so the audience becomes the character and they sort of right. experience the same way. Right, exactly. And, and with that book in particular, and how I like to do a lot of horror like that is um, you're experience the shock of your protagonist you experience the shock of Dahlia as she's going through and dealing with all of this stuff um, and I think that adds to the level of horror in the book because you're having to experience it alongside her but you know you're still in a young adult novel so how she's dealing with it is different than someone who's like in a military sci-fi novel or something like that how they're how they're processing it is different is, is this a, a first person uh, or is it written in third person? In this book, yes, it's a first person. Okay, excellent. That's, you know, I think that's just a great idea because not only does the audience sort of become the protagonist, but yeah, you can sort of give it, give them the horror in degrees. I think that's brilliant. Yeah, yeah, that, that was the goal at least. <laughs> well, now, Young Adult, I'm assuming, covers quite a bit of an area. What is your target age demographics for the stories you write? Usually the target is um, upper um, teen years. So somewhere between 15 to 18 is the target demographic area for it. Um, now, my my young adult fantasy series, the Stolen series that I have, it's a trilogy. That's more aimed at kind of a younger audience, more like 13 to 14 and up, um, you know, depending on reading level for, for, for kids that age and and you know that one is you know it's fantasy it's not horror that's that's a series where i more like you said pull the punches on that because it's a different genre i'm not going to go into the horrific scenes as much in that kind of series as i would in a young adult horror novel no you know that, that makes sense now i have some friends that absolutely they love young adult novels and you know they're my age but that's all they buy they only buy young adult novels because they yep. just love them and you know we see that Harry Potter, you know, the Hunger Games. Do, do you do you add anything extra for maybe your adult audience or do you, do you just write for the youth and just that we all were youth that we're going to sort of feel the same way? So I kind of see both my adult and my teen audiences as being the same as far as um, going through the character trauma and, you know, what my characters are going through, I want my audience to go through. Um, I think one of the things that's fascinating with the young adult novels is um, the idea of transformation and people finding their identity. Um, mm. In my stolen trilogy, um, Chalet starts out having a lot of anger toward people in her life. 
And then whenever something, you know, terrible happens to her, it really shifts her perspective on things. Um, and even though that's aimed at a young adult audience, I think people of all ages can understand that feeling of regret and that feeling of wishing that you'd done something differently previously. Um, but that those teen years are really a transformation time and a time of finding your identity and finding your values. And I think that's what really draws people to that kind of that kind of area. Absolutely. And, you know, when I was 14, there was no way I would have understood what it meant to be 40. But now that I'm in my 40s, I absolutely remember what it's like to be 14. Yep. So, So I can definitely, even though it's been decades, I can still relate with a teenage protagonist exactly and sometimes you step into those shoes and you're like oh man i remember all this anxiety and all these emotions and all this pressure and all of these you know different things in my life pulling me in different directions and it's it's not that hard to step back into those shoes again with the right kind of environment (laughs) when everything was new yes yes and kind of terrifying in a lot of ways you know there's a lot of things that you haven't done yet when you're 14 and there's a lot of things that you might have done that people don't respect you for doing, you know. Um, there's there's a part in um, the Stolen series, Chalet has to take care of her father who has a mental illness problem. And um, she doesn't have anyone she can really turn to to help her work through the issues that she's that. Um, and I think that's a very unique situation that some teens find themselves in, having to be caretaker for people older than them. Yeah, no, especially now where people are living so much longer. Right. And and sometimes, you know, it's the grandparents and then the, the, the parents have to dedicate themselves to, you know, 40 hours plus work or more. And so I think it's falling much more on uh, uh, teenagers to, to, to take care of uh, elderly family. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and to different levels, you know, you know, they might be handling budget, they may be handling um, groceries in the house, or they might not be. There's so many like various levels of, of experience when you look at someone who's 14 based on their life experiences and what they've had to deal with. It's just, it's fascinating. It's, it's, it's very different from one person to the next, you know? Yeah. Now, now you also have written adult literature, correct? Yes, I have. Yes, I have. What's the difference from a writer's point of view when you're writing something for a, a teen audience as opposed to a, a more mature audience? So for my teen audience, I really focus on, like you were talking about earlier, you mentioned there's a newness about things. Um, and I think that's one of the, the key elements in young adult literature. And then with adult fiction, um, typically, when like I was thinking, I wrote a, a horror Western piece. And my protagonist in that, Colton Fenn, is a supernatural detective. But he's kind of a, a gritty older guy in his 40s who's seen some things in his life. And so he's a little bit more bitter, you know what I mean, as a character compared yeah. to like a protagonist in my one of my young adult novels who has a lot more optimism and determination about things. Um, there's different perspectives you can take with adult characters in short stories or novels and than you can with um, um, young adult novels. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you do you tend to write? And I, I know this is a personal choice, but do you tend to write your adult writing in first person or third person? Oh, third person. I usually write most of my adult writing in third person. Um, 
In fact, my my stolen trilogy is all third person as well from my oh, young okay. adult trilogy. It's just with horror, I wanted that first person reaction to things that you can't. It it kind of loses the punch a little bit when you do third person. Um, yeah. And I wanted to see the monsters coming out from the character's perspective. You know, I didn't want to be like something. The creature moved over here. No, I want the to see the the the, the vagueness of it from the per- character's perspective to get that impact. And like we were talking about new, you have the regular world, new things that we all experience. Mm-hmm. Now you have the new supernatural. Right, exactly. And especially in the seeking, like few people have seen the monsters in the world that Dahlia is experiencing. So whenever she sees it, it's brand new because most people don't live to, to talk about them afterwards. You know what I mean? So it, they, there's multiple layers of that. <laughs> Now, uh, what what are some of your inspirations for writing? Oh, gosh. I have a lot of authors that have inspired me over the years. Um, Stephen King, Anne Rice, Tolkien. Um, some, you know, kind of newer authors include um, Sherry Priest, Susanna Clark, with her um, um, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell book. Oh, yes. that's that's incredible. The magic system in that is just beautiful. It's a long book, but the it's it's fascinating. And, of course, Neil Gaiman. Um, yes. His whole Sandman series is just incredible and super inspiring. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, I would recommend any of those. Yeah. Now, with, and, and I think we've kind of mentioned it, but I've always thought that young adult stories are sort of character-driven. Yes. Uh, and especially, you know, I think in the last 40 years, there are so many female good well-written complex young adult characters yeah um what do you what do you what do you what do you you do to kind of get into writing a protagonist and is there any pressure on you for her to be a role model so i do think about my audience when i create a character um with uh, Chalet in the Stolen series, she has a lot of anger issues to begin with um, because I felt like, you know, that was her character. And it took me a long time to kind of settle on the source of those anger issues and how she would handle them. I recreated her like several times before I felt comfortable with her as a character and how she would move forward through the story. That to me is one of the most important parts is settling on your character's personality for your protagonist, especially in young adult, because they drive the rest of the story. Um, but for me, what helps when I'm creating a character is to kind of let them be themselves to find their own person. Don't let just the environment determine who they are. They can have their own opinions and personalities, um, and flaws, you know, um, with Shalai, she has major anger issues and, you know, even though that might seem kind of harsh to begin with, with the, in the series over time, she sorts herself out a little bit through the experiences that she has. And I think having those flaws to begin with and seeing how she changes as a person throughout the series is really important. That, that, that character development, maybe not start out as this perfect character or not even end up as this perfect character, just exactly. a realistic character who's improving. Yes, exactly. And I think, you know, you were like, is this, is this, you know, do I think of them as role models? And to some extent, I want to show a healthy transformation in my characters, you know, especially in young adult. 
I do consider that because these books, I want people to read them and, and experience what the character is experiencing. I don't want them to, to, you know, feel like my protagonist in some of these is, is unrealistic or is, um, um, doing, becoming more and more of a terrible person without any kind of reason for it, you know? Um, I, I want to show a realistic transformation for them. So, yeah. Excellent, excellent. So, where do you think YA fiction is going, or where would you like to see it go? So, I see a lot more diversity in young adult fiction, but I think we could use a lot more, um, like, protagonists with disabilities, you know, um, more people of color. Um, I can't tell you how hard it was, for example, for The Seeking. I have a person of color on the on the cover because it's Dahlia. And um, how much my uh, cover designer had to struggle to find good stock imagery for that, you know. Um, yeah. And that's just, that's sad. We shouldn't be in that kind of position. <laughs> and the only way to increase that kind of content is to make more demand out there. So I would love to see more books that have more diversity and and just more inclusion. Um, I don't think there's enough LGBT representation in young adult books. I want to see more of that as well. It's more yeah. reflective of the current age of, of, of people in their teens, I think. And I think this is a great time to sort of, I mean, a great time being now, but a great time, you know, 14 to 18, where readers can put themselves in a position of a, a person of color or a person of another gender or of another sexual orientation by reading. I think that's, the, you know, this is a wonderful time for it to be explored. You know, I, I have a, a younger friend who um, is, is gay and he said, you know, his first experience is sort of was to feel like a woman was playing Tomb Raider. Yeah. I would never have thought of that. But he said, just sitting there at home playing this game let me be who I wanted to be, not who I, or experience what I wanted to be, not yeah. who I was. Yeah. And I think books are a unique way of kind of transporting yourself into another person and experiencing the world through those eyes and, you know, through all the, the ups and, and downs of, of that experience. And I think that's a, it's a really unique way of putting yourself in the shoes of someone else. And I think, um, especially in young adult novels, because there's so many different, you know, types of young adult novels out there, that's a really wonderful area for this kind of breeding ground of creativity and diversity to kind of um, coincide together. And I, I, I think we need more of it. I really do. And, and no matter how good a movie or a TV show is, it's never going to catch the, the nuances or the, 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 you know, the personal thoughts just right of a, of a character in a book. Right, exactly. I, I you know, I, I hate to say, point out examples, but with like um, Bird Box, um, I still haven't watched the show for that because I read the book and I just know that any, you know, visual interpretation of that is not going to match up because there's so much that happens in the head of your character that it's really hard to convey to the screen without having a lot of like really creative tricks that you're using and, and potentially overlaying dialogue and stuff. And it's just really difficult to do. Oh, absolutely. Well, I have just really enjoyed this interview and I've learned quite a bit. 
<laughs> is there anything maybe you'd like to share with our audience or maybe something that we didn't cover? No, I think that's pretty much everything. Um, again, you can find my books at MarlenaFrank.com, um, and I'm at most online retailers. Excellent. Well, um, you know, thank you very much, and you have a wonderful day. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Special thanks again to Marlena Frank for being a guest on Radio Free Oleander. The Necrocastican, where we blend horror and metal for your pleasure, and ours, with special guests from horror and metal, with host Smoke and Walt Ball, ah! Thomas R. Clark, Mr. Scott Reacts, you don't have to pay for it, which I think is ridiculous. Sergeant Fury Dan Roberts, and Uncle Skip Novak, train, train. and where can you find the Necrocastican, Sergeant Fury, wherever you get your fine-ass podcasts, Mondays on Project Entertainment Network. Hey everyone, welcome back to D&D on D&D with me, DB, and this guy here, Dave, Farmer Dave. Dave, before we get going too far, how are the goats doing? The goats are the goats are well, you know. They're, they're keeping warm. We sure. got anyone that needs to be cold in the barn. We yeah. got the goat coats going on. Gotcha. And, uh, yeah, so we're looking for we're looking for a whole bunch come March. Uh, uh, new goats. Cool. I have like a crate of People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos sweaters that I think we could turn into goat coats. I think that that would be a good thing if if you have some extra ones oh yeah yeah i mean that that show's done i don't think anyone wants to hear that one again but uh speaking of goats uh i was thinking like one thing that uh could probably definitely uh run across and uh hold on one second i gotta i gotta uh, uh answer this oh I got to text my mom back and be like, hey, sorry. <laughs> cool. Okay. Uh, something I was thinking about with D&D and goats is, like, with northern games, you can have, like, I don't know, like, uh, pack goats and, like, uh, have, like, goats play more of a, a different role than, like, if you're, like, doing, like, alpine-style kind of games or something like that. Uh, a goat could be... Uh, I don't know, like a, uh, not, not just like something, uh, a source of meat or a source of milk or something like that, but actually like, I don't know, someone who, uh, you have to battle resources against or a, a nemesis, something that knocks you off of the peak or <laughs> so, so the, choose yeah, on well, your yeah, rope. Uh, mountain goats, you know, or a dire mountain uh, goats yeah. or possessed, but you know, um, in North mythology, there is um, Thor's chariot is towed by goats. That's true. That's true. I was thinking, what... have you ever, oh, have you ever read a comic called The Devil's Panties? Oh, a billion years ago. A billion years ago. So, so one of the things that that Jen, the character in mm-hmm. Devil's Panties, does is she plays D and D. Yes. And they were looking for something to spend her money, and she was going through, and they were just reading off things. And she goes, a goat, a hundred gold piece, or it was ten gold piece or whatever, uh-huh. and that's it. She's going to get a goat for her halfling cleric. And from then on, you know, uh, they're in the game. Her, her halfling cleric 
ran into the the battles with uh, uh, on her on her war goat, and she went through like nine in one session because the monsters kept eating her goats. <laughs> I had a halfling bard. Uh, surprise that I played a bard. I had a halfling bard that I didn't pay like whatever the uh, least amount was. I I was like, okay, so what if I wanted to get a masterwork goat to ride on? And they're like, what do you mean? I mean, like, like a really fancy goat. Like, like rich people would be like, oh my, I can't believe you found one of those. Those are expensive goats. Like a super duper. duper. That's exactly what snooty, uh, snooty goat people sound like, by the way. Oh, oh, I imagine. I imagine they're, they're out at their farms being like, oh, I wish we had some abysmal goats. I, oh my, I wish we had some goats from this rare island off off the coast of um i don't want to say anything wrong and offend people with my accent so i won't um unlike people who would talk like that the snooty goat people uh but yeah yeah no 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 i i got a real super fancy goat and um it's like oh can i train this goat for battle they're like no you bought a show goat and i'm like i got a show goat and they're like yeah it 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 can't carry your stuff uh, and I'm like, can I ride on it? They're like, yeah, I can carry your weight. It doesn't move very fast. I moved at half speed, but I had a fancy goat. And everyone was like riding horses or ponies if they were uh, dwarves. And there's this half-lane bard who's just like taking up the rear and taking his sweet time, playing loot and just uh, riding his fancy show goat. That's, uh, that's, uh, those make the best characters. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and... Uh, my uh, goat was killed off by the DM who was mad at me for playing with <laughs> like that. <laughs> but yeah, no, um, uh, I, I have had experiences in cold climates with this particular killer DM is one reason that I brought up the goat story. The second one was uh, so I could bring up this. Uh, if you are a killer DM, this is a great place to like really go. Oh, did your characters remember to bring warm clothes? How are you going to wear? Pl- I mean, what what's going to keep you from freezing to death if you're just wearing plate armor? And then like, oh no, we have to outfit our characters. We have to take all that gold from our last game and spend it all so we don't die moving like two countries north. <laughs> And, you know, that's the one thing to think about is uh, outfitting your characters. I mean, you could do it simply with, like, magic, probably, like a ring of warmth. But, I mean, I don't know. You, you still got to have a little bit of gold or come across one. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And that's another thing. It's like uh, a, a good uh, reason to adventure would be like, well, we got to, you know, uh, maybe we're, we're beyond uh, this type of adventure. But one last one of these before we... Uh, move north to our uh, cool new kingdom or better jobs up there or whatever you want to do and be like so that we can outfit you know just like making outfitting part of like the game i mean like <laughs> having the money to outfit you know i mean use that as your plot or whatnot anyway but <laughs> yeah and, and another thing you know we think of we think of you know snow and high altitude but you know if if you really wanted to be realistic Mm -hmm. or maybe even a little sadistic as a gm you know you take the cold and altitude oh yeah because you guys are all minus two on your your constitution skill uh rolls uh the first week or yeah 
Yeah. And oh yeah, no, no, no. That may be a little too realistic, though. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, think about the other things that you can throw in there. You can throw in like any kind of ice-based monster, and you can throw in any like you know, it's like be like, oh, like, let's let's throw out any ice-based, rock-based, and then we throw in like hot steam, uh, uh, hot spring type stuff. We can like uh, have like water-based elementals hanging out at hot springs. We can have lava monsters. We can have steam efforts. We can have all kinds of stuff if we go with like, I don't know, Icelandic-y kind of like northern-y kind of stuff. High peaks and little valleys and tiny fishing villages kind of things. Or go with something kind of like akin to like Norway with uh, all of the fjords and whatnot. Is that, is that Norway with the fjords? Am I thinking Sweden? Uh... It's, yeah, Norway, Scandinavia, the whole area has, yeah, has yeah. fjords. When I was a when I was in, in high school, I did that. It was sort of a mountain, and I did mountain. Uh, you know, it was a mountain campaign. They were going up these mountains, and, and then what I did, yeah, there was a cave, and it led all of a sudden into this sort of steam and underground swamp. And so there were there were lizard men, <laughs> and that was sort of this whole, you know, this 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 dungeon was. You know, why is this village, you know, way up in the Arctic, why is it getting attacked by lizardmen? Mm-hmm. Well, it turns out they live in this huge underground cavern that, you know, steam. And so once they got into the, to the, you know, the, the cavern, it started becoming swampy. Huh. Interesting. Nice. So that's, that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah, no, you can do a lot of yeah, stuff. Yeah, no, I, I wasn't. I wasn't an uh, advanced enough DM at the time to think of something like penalties for the snow in the winter. Uh-huh. Um, but it, it was just my idea was just, you know, just, just shock them with this or big change of environment. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah. No, uh, and uh, yeah, you can... Uh... I keep thinking like you can do like ice caves, you can do ice castles, you can do architecture built of ice, which is pretty cool with your northern stuff and your subarctic areas. Uh, yeah, no, those it's uh, different types of animals. Maybe uh, use the same types of like wild animals, but maybe they have like uh, more fat on them and are furry or longer tusks or something like that. Uh, yeah, so make them make them dire creatures. Oh yeah, yeah, and I keep thinking about like goblins riding on like mountain goats or something. <laughs> yeah, and, and what I was thinking about just while we were talking is um, you take a, like a hag, and then just you know, you know, put her like heavy heavy fur and stuff, and make it you know maybe snow or ice spells. Mm-hmm. You know, make her make her an ice queen. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. No, no. Just, yeah. That's there's there's all kinds of things, and I keep thinking about like, huh? Can you do anything with like uh, ice-based undead? And I'm like, probably not zombies because of their meat, but like some kind of like uh, ice skeleton, like skeleton that's like uh, I don't know. You, you put like extra ice powers when you're enchanting them in them or something like that. Give them like frosted little things, and then uh, constitution damage when they touch you, kind of stuff. But yeah. <laughs> or, or, or an ice uh, an ice construct oh, or yeah. con- uh, ice golem uh, ice construct yeah 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 ice construct and, and a construct thank you uh-huh. I, my, my mouth and 
either my mouth or and or my brain is not working tonight. No, oh, no problem, no problem. And then I'm just thinking like and uh, you know. Oh, I'm sorry. I was just thinking of like subtypes and like, oh man, you can do like ice fade, you can do ice giants easily, and like, oh, what can you do with ice constructs? And it's like, oh yeah, ice columns. But yeah, no, there's all kinds of cool things you can do like that. And, and especially with Fae, mm -hmm. because Fae are so un, unworldly, mm -hmm. you know, you could just use the same Fae stats, but say, okay, this sprite has wings made out of ice. Yeah. Yeah, so you can use the same stats, and, and you can justify it because, you know, Fae are, are chaotic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Definitely. And... and and you know we, we think of mainly now all underground stuff, but the, you know this is the environment where the, the legends have trolls from. Definitely, yeah, yeah, small folk. And yeah, no, no, fae and fairies and oh, oh yeah, of course, but yeah, fae covering all that. You know, and you have you know of course the, the white dragon. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, yeah. But maybe you know. <laughs> maybe there's a a, a blue dragon or, or something else that just got stuck up there and you know it just its wings are frosted off so it's just mad and so it's trying to kill anyone it can get till it gets out of this 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 frozen area oh yeah yeah that'd be cool that'd be that'd be interesting uh, I, I keep thinking of like uh what do you call uh oh goodness like um uh, like uh, aboliths is the one that I think of, and like uh, mind flayers, but like um, not outsiders, but um, uh, the, it's on the tip of my tongue. It starts with an A, I think. Uh, not abomination, but something like that. Uh, anyway, I, I think of like like uh, Lovecraftian monsters that like uh, one could do like. Uh, or just 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 changing like monsters around like something that you know everyone expects to like shoot electricity now shoots uh, ice but or m it, move there, it around. There's but. several versions out there for 5e, mm -hmm. but you know the the Migo. Yeah. You know the Migo aren't affected by, you know they're they they live in you know in, in the Himalayas mm -hmm. and other mountains and they're not affected by the cold of space. Sure. You know. And that's a completely throw a party off. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was thinking of, uh, like, things like Cathoans and, like, a lot of, uh, you know, when you have a lot of Fae, like, you have a lot of, like, underground type of things and how many uh, uh, Lovecraftian deities, or not deities, but, like, monsters or, like, uh, mm. kind of kind of guys live, like, uh, Mount Vormith Adreth is what I'm thinking of, like Clark Ashton Smith kind of uh, stuff going on, which is very, very high fantasy, but, yeah. Or, or, or Ithaca and um, uh, Wendigo. Oh, geez. I, I believe that the Wind. I believe the Wendigo are in the, if not in the the monster manual, they're in another one of the basic books that you can get. Yeah. And I'm sure you can get Wendigo online. So. Oh yeah. That, that's an excellent one. You come across like a small village that's eaten them. Everybody. You know they <laughs> they they've gone to cannibalism. And, Oh, okay. When it comes to cannibalism stuff like that, I like to do the party comes across to camp and they notice stuff in the fire and then they run across um, that uh, whatever that party is, like what's left of them at the next campsite. 
and be like, oh, if you think this is bad, you should see the village we came from. And then you see that, and then, like, whatever's causing, you know, whatever evil's causing that is, like, yeah. then it's like, oh. And then you ha- end up dealing with, like, uh, I don't know, some kind of form of undead that's, uh, like, I don't know, like ghouls or something like that. And then, like, ghouls lead to Wendigos. But, yeah, I don't know. If you go with the, the onion approach. But you know, you know what, though? My favorite, though, my favorite D&D, you know, ice creature sure. is the Frost Giants. The Frost Giants. Cool. Yeah. Tell me about I Frost mean, Giants. You, you've, you've got to be at least... Well, Frost Giants, you know, so you... D&D, of course, they're, I think, they're the, one of the... They're, they're, like, higher than Cloud Giants. Uh-huh. I think they're under, like, Storm Giants. Sure. So they're one of the more powerful. So you've got to have a... I gotta have a, a high enough level party, but think of you know. So we think of frost giants as these big lumbering creatures, which they are. So I'm gonna give <clears throat> two examples of frost giants All right. that you can use in your game. Sure. And one is the Robert E. Howard story. Mm-hmm. It's a Conan story. Uh, it's called the uh, Frost Giant's Daughter. All right. And and so Howard, when he wrote this, he was still he hadn't quite got the idea on on who Conan was. All right. So Conan, he, he's with his Asgards, which are kind of his Viking buddies. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's so cold, they all die. He's the only one because, you know, he's Conan, sure. he survives yeah, yeah. this cold. And then this just beautiful woman in front of him. And he just, she uses some sort of magic. And it's the only time Conan really loses control. Even when he's fighting and killing me, this is the only time, I mean, that he, he just, his lust is just so great for her because she's used some sort of magic on him. And so she's chasing him, but she's the frost giant's daughter and her two frost giant brothers mm-hmm. are um, waiting to ambush him. Gotcha. And so they attack him. So, you know, the, here's this, you know, there's whatever a treasure, it could be, uh, a beautiful woman, it could be uh, gold or something, but these frost giants were, they ambushed, they were attacked, of course, this is Conan, he, <laughs> he kills them uh, and then, um, basically the the frost giant the frost giant's more like, like Odin he comes and he rescues his daughter at the last minute gotcha so so that's like, you know um, you know, these, these the frost giants, they can be, you know tricky and, and sneaky but, you know Think about who's the most famous frost giant? Santa? Loki. Oh, Loki. Okay. Loki's a frost giant. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's true, that's true. In that, now, the, the game rules are not, uh, you know, set up the, the frost giants like that. Mm-hmm. But let's say you've got a really powerful team. Sure. What if a frost giant had magic like Loki? What if he was a master of illusion? That'd be pretty cool. That would be that that, yeah. that that that'd be a team of superheroes. <laughs> yeah, you would have to have some high-powered level characters. But yeah, and, and so they're going in. Oh, it's frost giant, you know. Oh, you know, especially if you start them off at the beginning of the hill, mm-hmm. and they kill off some hill giants. Oh, that was easy. These sure. are just like their big brothers, and all of a sudden, you know, they start shooting out all sorts of illusion spells. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something. Uh... I was thinking about is uh, would be good for 
I, I just think about the Frost Giant shooting off illusion spells, how, how pretty cool that would be having like a Frost Giant character or even a Frost Giant NPC, a hireling of something. That, 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 that'd be pretty awesome. But I, I was thinking about uh, barbarians, like like historical barbarians, like northern barbarians, like the uh, Ostrogoths or like Robert E. Howard type of barbarians. Uh, being the Sumerians, yeah. yeah, yeah, no, 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 just, just, just having like your barbarian horde in the north, and like maybe at first being like, oh man, I'm being treated like an outsider. They're attacking us. Oh, oh, and then you go in far enough, it's like, oh, they were only attacking us because we were invading. Okay, I get it. All right, or, 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 or however you want to treat barbarians, be like, oh my god, I hear there's barbarians up here, and it's like. Oh, they have all the same stuff we have. It's just cold. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, and I, I, I think because, you know, even though, you know, Conan travels all through, you know, Hyboria. Sure. You know, he, he starts out the Hyborian lands, you know, uh, Semiara, it's, it's a frozen area. So I think we've really got in our minds locked barbarians and, and cold ice yeah. areas. Yeah. Uh, I think barbarian and Viking in some ways go hand in hand, except for Vikings have boats and barbarians just generally hoof it. <laughs> Yak it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, and uh, if, if uh, you're listening still and you want to find out more about barbarians, go online and look up barbarians. It's, it's spelt just like it sound, sounds. And uh, that's, that's not the dumbest thing I've said all day. So <laughs> no, and we and we did a we did a, a show a couple months ago too. You might want to hit the archive, sure, sure, uh, listeners. And we did a, a whole show on barbarians. Yeah, yeah, we did, we did. So check that out. And oh man, uh, I'm I'm thinking about like ice necromancers, and I'm like, oh, that's not that exciting. But uh, ice, uh, oh, uh, uh, ice mages. Like, like mages that specialize in ice. I'm like, oh yeah, no, that would be so awesome. Or being a fire guy, being like, I got this handled. We're going up north. I got this handled. Hold on, everyone. This is my thing. <laughs> yeah. or, or, you know, there's so many, you know, winter, uh, winter deities that, you know, you could make a, a cleric from. Or, sure, sure. Or, you know some sort of winter fade to make a, a warlock a, a, a follower up. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely. Oh yeah, no, there's there's so much folklore around autumn and winter and I don't know, of, of and so much folklore coming from like the subarctic regions and like the alpine regions and like the, just the snowy cold places and you know what, you can always pull from like weird stuff that happens in the Midwest and the and in 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 the uh, the winter time. There's a book out there of like pioneer weird stuff that happened called Wisconsin Death Trip, uh, about like just terrible things that happened in Wisconsin uh, during the I think the uh, mid to late 1800s. Just stuff that happened in the newspaper that someone like compiled to like kind of tell the story of like weird Wisconsin. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, there's that's definitely a, a there's a, a lot of things oh, yeah. sources. Definitely. 
Definitely. One thing though, I'm going to throw a, a plug for um, sure. Uh, uh, for um, uh, the Oleander Book Club. Yes. Uh, I just got a chance to start today uh, uh, listening to oh uh, the Henry uh, Nutter stories. Yeah, yeah, those are nice, and they're really good. And you know, I I I suffer from a, a, a you know adult attention disorder, uh-huh. you know, uh, and so things like you know um, like this Lovecraft, even you know Derelict sometimes that are so painstakingly chose sure. each of the words you know I, when I read I, I jump all over a paragraph mm-hmm. and, and I just say that you know this is a great way so I, I even stories I've read and I think I know you know I'm picking up new things every time I listen to it so yeah it's just some really great stuff on the Oleander Book Club now. oh yeah no or, no one thing I have to say about uh, some of the uh, stories is it reads like uh, Kuttner learned how to write by reading popular science. <laughs> popular science in Virgil. But uh, <laughs> no, I, I, I love Kuttner. I love Kuttner. Uh, some of it does seem kind of like, uh, kind of, uh, pulp has this kind of like stiffness to it. I don't know if it's just the era or if it's like, um, I, I don't want to say that uh, Kuttner's uh, was unprofessional. But maybe not as like uh, well trained as other writers out there, and maybe relied on the uh, thesaurus a bit too much. <laughs> no, I, 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 I tease a lot of pulp writers about that. But uh, no, 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 no. There's 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 something very pulpy and kind of like um, I don't know stiff about pulpiness. I don't I don't know if that makes sense if if you understand what I mean about that. But like overly wordy at times. But I mean, Pur- purple prose. Yes, uh, yes. Thank you, thank you. Uh, cutting to the point, uh, Kuttner's pretty good at that, and like really well at describing things. And I've I've really enjoyed putting it together and listening to it while I'm working on it, and listening to it afterwards as well while I'm at work. So yeah, no, it's it's really fun. And if you haven't listened to it, and if you're still listening to this episode, I highly highly recommend it. So yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So, all right. Well, that's it for D&D on D&D, everyone. We'll see you next time. And all right. Hey, and Dave. just a head, head, heads up on, on next week. Yes. Uh, we're going to talk to a writer who specializes on one of my favorite tropes. What's that? The final girl. Okay. And uh, we're going to continue on some of these... Um, these uh, traditions and Santa substitutes, oh, yeah. including the Yule Witch, her, her seven children, and Kaiju-sized cat. What? That sounds crazy. All right. And I don't know what we have got going on for other stuff, but we'll figure it out, and you'll find out first. So, uh, yeah. Uh, anything you're going to do in town, Dave, before we uh, head on out? Um, no, just... Uh, Got to be careful because, like I said last week, uh, any misdemeanor, um, it, it, uh, the punishment during December for committing a misdemeanor in Oleander is to be beaten by Krampus. And Krampus this year is, is Minion, yeah. uh, Jack Stark. And, you yeah. know, I just, uh, last thing I want is, you know, uh, do a, a rolling stop 
and get beat in the back by Jack Stark. So I'm just being really careful. Yeah. No. No. As as, as soon as this over, I'm. I'm I, oh man. No. Oh shoot. I was like, I'm gonna knock his coffee off his table, but it's like, oh. COVID-19. I can't get close enough. Anyway, thanks everyone for listening. This has been Oleander, uh, Radio Free Oleander, not Oleander Book Club. Uh, listen to Oleander Book Club. Radio Free Oleander, 11.30 a.m. KZOM Oleander, Oregon. Thank you for listening. Review, rate, review, subscribe. Uh, tell your friends about us. Uh, check the show notes to find out people you can help. And... If you want to, you can find us on social media. We'll do something someday. <laughs> and uh, until then, um, we need a sign off. We need a sign off, yeah. All right. Thanks, everyone. Bye. You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio.